Wait. Is it is this a surprise who we're calling? Oh, I uh, think my call- microphone's wrong. Oh, that's we're probably calling, my voice is uh, bad. We're calling Sean Dust. So brother. Oh, uh, nice. Players, okay. Players Good. Brother. Wait, he did, hasn't he only... done it before? Did he? He I did feel, it from a yeah. bar in Chicago. Yeah. Oh, that's right. He did do it from a bar in Chicago. He'll be the first repeat. Because, well, well, I was going to have Polish Matt do it. Your Polish Matt, repeat? yeah, he's my insurance guy. <laughs> Got it. Well, uh, yeah, I was going to have Polish Matt on, but he's, uh, yeah, he had he has child duty tonight. So Sean Dust will well, volunteer. Yeah. So um, let me get you the number. Three one two. Hello, Sean. Are you are you in a bar in Chicago again? Oh, I forgot. Uh, oh, I can, I can come go. on! I'm not far away. Yeah, I can go there. <laughs> go to the holiday. Club. I was gonna say, quick, find a bar so we can <laughs> uh, be introduced from somewhere. And at the bar, shout real loud like it's a big deal. Be like, come on, the speech guys. Hey, we got the speech guys <laughs> here. I'm just glad we can finally hear you this time. <laughs> is this is this pretty crisp? Oh, this is very crisp. It's like you're inside my studio. How you guys been doing? Hey, we uh, run the conversation here. <laughs> <laughs> How have you been doing? <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain. Can't complain. Matt, what, why do we have Sean on tonight? So, Sean, do you have you heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn? I think he said something like, the only thing that uh, has to occur for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. Did you look that up right before uh, we called you? I did not. I could be wrong. <laughs> I might be remembering oh, somebody okay. else, but I thought that was him. I thought that was him. That sounds like something he would say. Sean, what oh. was the episode you hosted last for us? Are you introduced? I believe it was The Great Divorce. Ah, uh, mm. that sounds right. The Abolition of great. Man. Well, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So one, one yeah. of the C.S. Lewis books, The Lion, okay. the Witch, and the Wardrobe, maybe. So where where did so you, that's uh, that quote is is your is the extent of your Solzhenitsyn knowledge? Well, I'm looking them up here. Uh, so. Let's see. <laughs> Yes, off the top of my head, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. So, well, go ahead, Mike. Can I add something? So, you know, we're still in the Speeches by Prisoners series, all right? Mm. While you likely haven't been to prison, can you share some anecdote of when perhaps you've been grounded most severely? Grounded most severely? Yeah, grounded, like by your mom or dad. <laughs> oh, oh, grounded? Gosh, that was a good or kid. I don't just think the I got worst, grounded that much. What is the worst trouble you've been in? Have you been in the, have you, have you been reprimanded by the law? By the man? Yeah, I had to hand over my license registration a few times. Mm. Did you give a, like, gosh, epic speech? <laughs> what about perhaps so this this is heart of the Harvard commencement speech in 1978. What what about a commencement speech that you recall that you witnessed? Perhaps Matt Damon came to your local community college. Oh my goodness. Uh so shoot, I actually skipped my commencement. 
this is yeah sorry I, I wish I had better news mm. okay <laughs> You're really not giving us much to work here. You came up with a quote that sounds like something Winston Churchill said, probably. You've never been in any sort of exile or incarceration. What good are you? Struggling. We're really struggling. You don't even... Matt, do something with this character you were on the show. I'm struggling to work my magic. (laughs) <laughs> all right. Don't Solzhenitsyn yourself, Mike. All right. We're going to do that here in a little bit. So so Alexander Solzhenitsyn, while a Russian, is yep. not a – he's very anti-communist, but he's also yep. got some scathing reviews for Western civilization. What Ooh, is that's... your favorite part about communism and your least favorite part about Western civilization? Someone tells you what to do, I think, right? You just don't have to make choices. They're like, hey, you're going to go be – uh this or that. Let's see, worst part about Western civilization. Uh, hmm. Well, it depends on if you believe in perfectibility, as the French would say. But yeah, we're not perfect. I guess that's the worst thing. Sure. Very diplomatic. <laughs> Okay, Sean. I was waiting for you to say the women because Russian. We all order male, or there's Russian male order brides, but Russians don't right. order oh, brides man. from America. I was yeah. thinking yeah, too philosophical there. I'm sorry. Yeah, the, yeah. See, Sean, uh, this the, is the, what do you call it? The trade deficit of male order brides. Maybe that's is that the worst thing. Why don't you just take it from there and you know give give the fans something to be excited about? Just like that time you introduced that. C.S. Lewis speech from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. All right. Action. Action. Uh, action. Gosh no, damn it, Sean! That <laughs> <laughs> speech, guys, episode 42. Introduce it. That speech, guys, episode 42, presenting. <laughs> Alexander Solzhenitsyn's speeches from prison. Yeah. Okay. That's something about <laughs> like that. Hey, Sean, we Just appreciate like the effort. We <laughs> call back we'll, anytime. We'll see you in 16 episodes. <laughs> hey, let's cue the music. Michael Schaefer, Ross Johnson, Matt Schultz, and Landon Fry are all are all here. Yeah, free, free. I've been back and I'm just gonna say it. I've been thinking it for ten minutes. I don't want to podcast here. Oh yeah. Now I've seen the road. Pregnancy is a beautiful thing. Pregnancy is a gift. stories to tell. Paint sticks to asteroids. We are called to emerge from that default setting of self-involvement. Uh,
disaster. <laughs> Just to clarify, that quote is often attributed to one Edmund Burke. However, it can't be found in any of his writings. I don't think Alex is the one that said it. Matt, what do we got going on tonight? We got the Alex speech. What's uh, what's what's the story with uh, Alexander here? Yeah, the title of the speech is A World Split Apart. It is a Harvard commencement speech that he gave on June 8th, 1978. So we're in the Speeches by Prisoners series. So uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, fits that by uh, his imprisonment in, in 1945. So uh, a little bit of background. He, uh, so he was born in Russia in 1918, uh, was a professor, served in World War II. Why, why did he go to prison in 1945? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Oh, okay. Well, it seems like right when you say, okay, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. So, uh, so served in World War II, was well decorated there. In 1945, he was criticized or he was arrested for criticizing Stalin in personal correspondence and was sentenced to an eight year, eight years in work, uh, like a Russian work camp thing. Throughout that, he was in prison and then had some, they, I guess, uh, an internal Russian exile. So they sent him to just some remote part of Russia. When, as he came back, he was teaching high school mathematics and began his writing career where he became increasingly critical of Russia, uh, in particular, critical of his treatment and his imprisonment as well as just other uh, yeah just the circumstances leading to his imprisonment in 1974 he was arrested again stripped of his russian citizenship and he was exiled to west germany from there he kind of bounced around for a couple towns in europe and ended up living in vermont in the united states uh, for i think 14 years or so eventually he was able to return to russia where he died in 2008 the, where I was first made familiar with Solzhenitsyn was, I think he was uh, he was referenced by Jordan Peterson on a few different occasions. I mainly, I mean, most of my knowledge of him was what was what Jordan Peterson had said, and I, I want to say there uh, he just came up in a couple other just different things I was listening. To. I, the others I couldn't specify, I suppose, but but yeah, kind of seemed like this distant figure. Like, hey, maybe I'll may learn more about him someday. Vaguely intrigued by him, but. Yeah, with the Speechers by Prisoners series, it seemed like the perfect time to uh, dive a little deeper. What did you guys know about Alexander Solzhenitsyn ahead of time? Did you have any impression of what uh, what he was like or his life story or anything? Oddly, I can't place where, as I was just doing a little bit of research on him, some comments he made about making religion, not modern, but like, I think some people asked him some, question, some questions about like, the Vatican II's attempt to, like, you know, bring the church to the modern world and things like that. And anyway, he was just involved in a conversation about things like that. And as I was reading it, I have read those things before, like that conversation he had with this person. Interesting. I literally can't place why or where, though. Yeah, and he's an interesting figure, and especially the timing of the speech, too, because this is 1978. So kind of, I mean, my history with Vietnam is a little bit fuzzy, but nearing the end of the Vietnam War, and at this stage, like America is certainly very, uh, has grown very tired of it, at least from my uh, impression. So I think that's kind of interesting timing because I, I know he made a couple of Vietnam comments in the speech, but kind of interesting timing because he, he seemed to be kind of uniquely sympathetic to like a variety of just a wide variety of people and also uniquely critical of a wide variety of people. Yeah, and I think that's probably what, what uh, really got me excited about reading the speech. 
So with that, let's uh, listen to a little audio of the speech. Uh, what clip or what segment of the speech are we going to be listening to? So the green, like the... <laughs> I meant like for, for the like context <clears throat> oh, for the, the audience. brother, yeah. brother speech. So, so for the, the speech, it's a rather lengthy speech in its entirety. We're going to listen to a chunk from the introduction and a chunk from the conclusion. I don't doubt we'll kind of bring into bring in some quotes from the middle as we discuss, but uh, that's what we'll be hearing uh, hearing right now. Okay, let's do it. But the blindness of superiority continues in spite of all and upholds the belief that the vast regions everywhere on our planet should develop and mature to the level of present-day Western systems, which in theory are the best and in practice the most attractive. There is the belief that all those other worlds are only being temporarily prevented by wicked governments or by heavy crises or by their own barbarity and incomprehension from taking the way of the Western pluralistic democracy and from adopting the Western way of life. Countries are judged on their merit of their progress in this direction. However, it is a conception which develops out of Western incomprehension of the essence of other worlds, out of the mistake of measuring them all with a Western yardstick. The real picture of our planet's development is quite different, and which about our divided world gave birth to the theory of a convergence between leading Western countries and the Soviet Union. It is a soothing theory which overlooks the fact that these worlds are not at all developing into similarity. Neither one can be transformed into the other without the use of violence. I am not examining here the case of a world war disaster and the changes which it would produce in society. As long as we wake up every morning under a peaceful sun, we have to lead an everyday life. There is a disaster, however, which has already been underway for quite some time. I am referring to the calamity of the despiritualization and the irreligious humanistic consciousness. To such consciousness man is the touchstone in judging everything on earth, and perfect man who is never free of pride, self-interest, envy, vanity, and dozens of other defects. We are now experiencing the consequences of mistakes which had not been noticed at the beginning of the journey. On the way from the Renaissance to our day, we have enriched our experience, but we have lost the concept of supreme, complete entity, which used to restrain our passions and our irresponsibility. We have placed too much hope in political and social reforms, only to find out that we were being deprived of our most precious possession, our spiritual life. In the East, it is destroyed by the dealings and mentionations machinations of the ruling party. In the West, commercial interests suffocate it. This is the real crisis. The split in the world is less terrible. The split in the world is less terrible than the similarity of the disease plaguing its main sections. Yeah, the audio that you just heard was not Alexander himself, but rather a very fine English gentleman uh, reciting the text. The original speech was in Russian. There was a translator there at the ceremony. So with uh, just to kind of set a little bit of the stage and maybe have a little intro discussion before we get into the critiques that he makes kind of in the meat of the speech that, that we didn't get to hear yet. Um, what, it, what were your thoughts on 
just his, yeah, I guess his perspective on the interplay between the rest of the world and the West, and then the West's impression of the rest of the world. Well, I think that what's sort of on point there, you know, we're visualizing in a global Easterner, right, who is on this fairly prominent Western stage, right, where you're sending off these Harvard grads to be some of the nation's best, or one may a better word, is most productive, you know, lawyers and doctors, whatever else they do at Harvard, <laughs> write books. If I were, if I were a graduate sitting there, I'd be like, what the hell was that speech that just <laughs> happened? Yeah, Because sure. there is virtually, and this was one of the critiques of it um, that I was reading in the New York Times obituary. Uh, he died in 20, 2000, 2009 or something like that. Um, that it's just, it just rails on <laughs> the West. Uh, it obviously rails on the East too, and it in its communism, of course. But at the same time, that's I think what makes it so refreshingly, um, or maybe like naturally credible is the right word for it. Um, is the very fact that like he doesn't care about making friends. Like that was also one of the critiques is that even once he went back to Russia in 1994 like everyone hated him like russian nationalists and people in the west obviously thought he was just rude and yeah he had no friends he just said said what he felt was right and it's it makes finding what resonates with you more more authentic is maybe maybe the right word for it he's clearly someone or seemingly someone who's not doing this just for a for a for a power hit um he was actually offered or strongly suggested to like run for president in russia once it became a democracy but he refused so yeah just think about the speech um so i listened to it i listened to him give it with like the translator present i just kind of wanted to hear his voice um it was a little bit tricky at times just with you know him saying it in Russian and then the translator and it kind of just the timing and stuff. I, I, under, I see like so someone could critique like, hey, you're giving a commencement speech to Harvard, you know, spitting, you know, all this time just pointing out the railing right ra- railing <laughs> on the West. But at the same time, like, I don't know, I feel like in another sense, it's like, and maybe not that specific day because people are probably just ready to graduate and have fun and stuff, but... Like, you're kind of talking to these people that realistically are going to have, you know, good jobs and be influential people, just, you know, they're educated at Harvard, so that's going to be helpful, you know? So, like, I feel like there's something to the sense of, like, combining this idea, like, I don't know, I feel like it's probably true for most people, like, when you come out of college, just kind of having this sense of wanting to change the world and I'm going to do all these great things, so kind of not like bringing them down a notch, but like helping to try to shape just what they're to change. If that makes sense. 
yeah, kind of temper, not temper the enthusiasm as if you're just trying to stop it. Yeah, provide guardrails for it. I would imagine people from Harvard are pretty proud that they went to Harvard just based on the prestige, you know? So, like, sure. I could see, you know, I'm graduating, I'm a Harvard grad, I'm going to go X, Y, Z. So, like, I feel like I could see it being beneficial for someone to, yeah. I feel like taking you down a notch might be a, but in, like, a healthy way, you know? One, if if there was any time the speech had a chance of working at a micro level, at the commencement speech level, it would have been like freshman orientation. (laughs) Sure, yeah. Well, hey, (laughs) Alexander, I've already picked my major. I'm I'm part of the man now. (laughs) We're already gone. Me and the man are friends. Just comes in and hazes the freshman. I feel like there's a funny SNL skit there. Alexander Solzhenitsyn's freshman uh, uh, hazing camp or something. But yeah, and and I think it is, um, at least in the intro and the conclusion that we read, because that's, those are the, yeah, I mean, all of these other supporting points are are kind of, I think, funneling towards this, like, uh, I think, common Western misconception that, like, Yep, like we've got the we've got things figured out, and the rest of the world just needs to get on the same page as us, um, as like just a fundamental misunderstanding. Um, there was a different poll I think we I found in prep for uh, I want to say it was I couldn't find it in the outline, but I want to say it was for the uh, um, Jimmy Carter episode. Basically, how like the rest of the world sees America as like the biggest threat to either world peace or democracy. Like there are different polls and like questions and stuff and. And maybe one one brief question here before we get get to the the critiques he makes the, uh, more specifically. Do you think that so he talks about the West being you know this former colonialist power? Um, do you think that has changed much, or do you, are we still colonialist in certain ways? Um, yeah, I, I guess that might be an interesting thing to to discuss. Well, can can I suggest? So we've established the um, the basic ethos uh, style of the speech with um, dialing in the intro and conclusion. Can we just quickly, briefly run through what you pointed out here? Is the like seven or eight sections of the uh, of the meat of the speech? Sort of sure. how he's okay. The speech is kind of broken up into yeah. These uh, I would say fairly well defined. <laughs> critiques and that's kind of how we'll we'll describe them um going forward but um that he makes of the west so one critique being a decline in courage uh the next being well-being and that by that he means like an excess of well-being and kind of an overemphasis on that uh, in a physical way talks about a legalistic life or basically an overly legalistic life poor direction of freedom uh the poor direction of the press the trend of fashionability in thinking, kind of limiting um, limiting freedom more so than, or in different ways rather than like a, a legal limitation in, in thinking. He notes the interesting or the interest in socialism uh, among Western uh, Western civilization. Um, he sees it as not a model um, for the rest of the world, kind of like we, we mentioned, just the rest of the world doesn't really uh, think as highly of it as the West does. Um, short-sightedness, um, kind of, uh, yeah, just by the misunderstanding of the rest of the world is kind of short-sighted in its political goals. 
he sees a loss of the will or a loss of like a desire to maintain Western, like the tenets of Western civilization. He sees humanism as inherently problematic. And then he foretells an unexpected kinship or kind of similarities between uh, the Western, Western civilization and communism, actually, that, that might end up, uh, they're more similar than they think. So they might end up, uh, yeah, kind of working against each other or against themselves in different ways. So that's kind of a, a foretaste of the, uh, the meat of the speech. Okay, so <clears throat> just so the audience knows the direction we're going, I think we're going to um, dial into uh, several of those and kind of consider whether those are, are valid valid critiques or how, how true they are uh, 40 years later. Okay, your, your initial question, uh, Western uh, colonialism. <clears throat> yeah, so what um, is the West any less colonialist today? He kind of speaks in the past tense as if the West has stopped being colonialist. But then he also makes critiques about the West kind of assuming everyone wants to be like it. So, yeah, I guess what are your thoughts on that dynamic? Is the West any less colonialist now than uh, it's overtly colonialist past? I want to ask, like, what specifically is he referencing, like, with the with the past? Like, I don't know, just like if we're going to give a good comparison. But I think kind of an overall point is I think with most countries – any the west in general not just the united states but or you could say the united states the sense of you know colonialism would be less and that like countries aren't literally like not to the extent you know maybe some countries might try but like there's not the same sense of oh i'm just gonna go claim this land and stake the flag and it's ours now i would say there's probably still a sense of the west trying to wield and like america trying to wield a lot of influence in how different countries operate whether it's by you know um and you could argue whether it's good or bad that's kind of a different discussion but whether it's by military intervention after the 9-11 attacks obviously iraq is one thing but like with afghanistan you know taking away the taliban and like that whole thing that's happened now and they're back in power and just like so kind of militarily trying to intervene um removing leaders, dictators, whatever. And then there's also, I think, just like the monetary idea of, I mean, I know there's been instances of the United States withholding or not wanting to give as much foreign aid to countries that don't necessarily adhere to the same social beliefs that we do. Yeah, so I feel like they're definitely still trying to wield a lot of influence, kind of coming from a standpoint of we think we have the better way of doing things. But comparing it to the past and again without knowing exactly i guess what we're talking like what specific instance we're talking about it does seem like it's just different i think i think that the term colonialism gets it's one of those uh catchy words that a lot of people use um make themselves sound more intelligent than they might be and or to um sort of cast a particularly dark cloud over um you know american history or just any western country's history for that matter but to be as faithful to the nature of the question as possible i sort of want to dial in the a definition of um 
a colony or establishing a colony that would seem reasonable to us. Um, in my mind, like a colony is ordered specifically to a sort of like an extension of the establishing country in order to, um, at its core, extract some sort of natural resource. I think that's the sure. simplest term, right? Okay. To sort of extend that analogy, can there be other types of colonies or colonization, establishing colonies, or are we just sort of making up uh, a different word that sort of like, or a different idea that sort of tastes the same as the sure. original word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's a good way of yeah describing that. I don't necessarily want to get super bogged down in that yeah. sort of vocabulary, but it is there is maybe something to that because, of course, okay, so we'll sort of set that aside. Maybe if we have some epiphany yeah. a little bit later, we can come back to that. Yeah. But, you know, of course, you had mentioned in notes, you know, that um, colonization of Western ideologies, Western social and political thought, which... At its at the majority, at seemingly the strongest level, you know, it tends to be those. And you could probably just say it's the the doctrine of the United Nations, which you know has a certain sensibility towards. And these will be will be um, moral neutral uh, for now on these values, but uh, certain sensibilities towards you know. Climate change, resolving uh, starvation among, um, you know, in impoverished nations, diminishing any sort of sexual or reproductive restrictions in any sort of way. There, there's a lot of talk right now, of course, like in Africa or Russia or Asia, where it's like, oh, they don't have these same values and we need to get them in there right so again not making any negative or positive comments on the nature of those moral codes uh written within the united nations as some sort of like emblem of what the west represents or but that's that definitely seems like the way that water flows um which like you're getting that sort of rep sort of ties into what um alexander might have been getting at uh so long ago which honestly like surprised me that there's that much that resonated along these lines all the way back in 1978 yep yeah i mean that's what uh 35 years ago no 55 years ago i'm sorry 55 years ago no like 45 years ago you dunce (laughs) 200 years ago (laughs) two million years (laughs) but um (laughs) but yeah so 45 on the dot years ago because i i i think that one of the my favorite things that you just said was just the like the idea of colony as just like the flavor of colonization, you know, which is just like, ooh, mm. that's not good. That's not nice. That's, mm. you know, mm. versus like yeah. the true like phenomena of it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think are two different things. But yeah. we'll table that a little bit and kind of push forward. 
All right, so first kind of cross-section question. Uh, which of the critiques that Solzhenitsyn makes is the most accurate for the world today? We'll kind of do a round robin and then argue with each other. So, Ross, which section or which critique is the most accurate? I honestly think, so I'm trying to scroll up really quickly just to make sure I can speak to some of the things he spoke, he that he spoke about. I think the idea of well-being, so in the section on well-being, I feel like that just seems to hit the nail on the head as far as just, and I'm just picturing the United States of America today. When the West, modern Western states were being formed, it was proclaimed as a principle that governments are meant to serve man and that man lives in order to be free and pursue happiness. Cool. And then he talks about later the constant desire to have still more things and a still better life and the struggle to this end imprint many Western faces with worry and even depression, though it is customary to carefully conceal such feelings. This active, intense competition comes to dominate all human thought and does not in the least way, in the least open a way to free spiritual development. So I just kind of feel like this idea that even though we seem to be filling ourselves with everything, with comfort, with material goods, with wealth, with ease, with all of those things, that that isn't necessarily the fulfillment for like our human well-being. I feel like that seems very has seems has come to fruition in the United States of America today. Right. Mike, what's yours? Most uh yeah, the most accurate. I I marked that one down, but I had also but I also feel pretty strongly about the uh direction of freedom issue. Um, my, my opening statement here, I'm reminded <laughs> of something, um, that sort of stuck out to me when I was, uh, teaching, uh, high school theology and the beginning, I remember a chapter of the social justice textbook. I don't necessarily know what canonical document, um, first presented this particular language you know actually it might have been pope leo maybe since he was the one who sort of started all this or articulated it this way but it was the notion of rights and responsibilities that there's this like this yin yang relationship between these two things and you can only understand one in light of the other i mean it made a certain amount of sense then just sort of reviewing that and thinking about it but i think it's sort of the way that alexander presents it here um sort of in with a little bit more life experience since those few years ago it sort of reigns a little bit more uh more clearly as free freedom of agency in a sense which is a certain uh coupling with um with rights uh, doesn't necessarily mean a lot if it's not bound in some sort of um, design with a pursuit of excellence or a responsibility as a sort of synonym. So. so the one I thought was most accurate for today was the direction of the press. And it just did. Oh, of well, course. Just a Fake very news, succinct right? <laughs> <laughs> So his succinct quote, I think, captures a lot of 
today um, is this is a quote from our boy Solzhenitsyn. Hastiness and superficiality. These are the psychic diseases of the 20th century. And more than anywhere else, this is manifested in the press. No, I think that just pretty much describes <laughs> our modern news situation. And a couple things about, so Ross, you mentioned well-being. I almost listed that as the one that I thought was had the I, most grounds for pushback. I was close. I ended up choosing something different. Uh, Wait, like pushback against it or the fact that I... So the, the so the uh, well I I guess maybe spoiler alert the next question is which critique are you most likely or do you think there's the most pushback for which do you oh, not okay. feel is a fair criticism okay one because well being in and of itself isn't bad and as much as you can certainly uh, lose your sense of spiritual well being in the midst of material well being it's certainly not inherent that that happened. Kind of an interesting story I had heard so about Cardinal George. Um, so Cardinal George's, it was either his mother or grandmother, I can't remember, <clears throat> was lamenting that uh, this, I don't know, this is probably back in the 80s or something, that America had, had not, uh, had lost its sense of camaraderie and companionship and like looking out for each other that it had during the Great Depression when his mother or grandmother had grown up. Um, and she just remembered this this like strong uh, companionship and, and looking out for one another just due to the hard times. And Cardinal George said to his mother, "Well, maybe we need another Great Depression to you know remind ourselves of you know all these things that we need to look out for each other." And his mother said, "George, it's a good thing you're a priest because you have no common sense at all." Which I think, because I mean, if you think of like yeah, like another Great Depression, how terrible would that be? You know what? Like so. Anyway, all that to say, the desire for one being for well being. I thought there's there's a decent pushback, but certainly I, I yeah I can definitely jive with a lot of what he has to say in that that category because yeah, and I think original sin has a lot to do with it too, and that's kind of what he refers to as like the one psychological detail that was overlooked. You know, the constant desire to still have more things. I I was surprised. Um again how much resonance there was on that direction of the press point just how um you know he's basically saying how loose with words and superficial uh they were and i've been preaching the gospel of the printed newspaper for the past month and a half as i've become a daily subscriber of the wall street journal um and i love it it's fantastic um and like in my in my like you know contrasting printed news with the nonsense that's mostly on the internet like i had this idea that, that yeah i mean basically what alexander is saying here is like oh of course that kind of language would apply to internet online news but oh the printed newspaper back then like oh it was all it was all legit blah 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 so I mean, that was interesting and i think that it probably if i were to sort of distill an interesting takeaway from that point that you know the the internet didn't necessarily make up this kind of behavior it's not like it did not exist before but it does does make more ubiquitous and um 
ever-present, this kind of shifty behavior on the part of journalism sure. that is, you know, not tied toward truth, but, um, you know, selling newspapers or getting their, their name in the headlines or something. Which, you know, of course, in, in a certain level of um, empathy is maybe the right words, like... I mean, lawyers do that too. Sometimes lawyers, good lawyers, pursue truth in their cases, and then other times it's just about what they can win, you know, or not. There, you know, on uh, one of your questions was basically how good of news consumers are we? You know, how how uh, diverse of a spectrum of um, media types do we consume? And one of the uh, radio shows I listen to. Uh, KMOX, which I also try to evangelize. It's uh, on AM. <laughs> save AM. Hey, everyone, text your senators. Text your senators. Is AM radio going to go or something? Yeah, their car makers are complaining because it's it's has issues with uh, electric motors, I think. It sounds like there's oh. a workaround, but it's just more expensive. One of the bits, it's it's a mix of talk radio, but also actual St. Louis and Missouri and Southern Illinois journalism. But one of the complaints of the commentators on the show, which is a mix of center-right and center-left journalists and commentators, is how everyone, especially people on the right, are all about the media, the media. It's so left when... You know, particularly people on the show, it's like they're definitely not Fox News and they're definitely not NPR. And it, it does a certain discrediting to their work, their very work that attempts to be at this high level of integrity sure. when, yeah, it's not all this. Just like I would imagine it would upset this lawyer who is just busting their gut to serve people who can't afford them and you know then you have some just thoughtless butt who says something like oh all lawyers blah 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 you know something like that so a little bit of a ramble but i'll answer matt's question too um i did have a thought on the well-being thing but i think we're just too far gone so we'll put that in the post show um (laughs) rebuttals and people can listen out if they want but um the speech guys are (laughs) anti-self-help suck it up (laughs) But I think something that's interesting on the uh, the press thing, and again, and maybe I just had this thought, so I didn't really have time to research it because I literally just thought of it. I feel like when I heard that and him talk about that, I was picturing all of these things of today and just this when people would think of media and, you know, twists and trying to get your point across. But it probably would have been different, like, in 1978. It's like what he's attacking might not be the same thing that I'm picturing, if that makes sense. So, like, I feel like today we get you can get your news from anywhere. It's not just probably a few major newspapers and news outlets. So I feel like for some reason when I heard that, my mind just immediately went to today's world and how messed up it is. But I guess I didn't give a ton of thought to what he was specifically speaking of back in 1978. I do think it's interesting. I recently saw uh, something of our friends over at the Art of Manliness gave an article on being, I think it said like a ruthless editor or something like that. A long time ago, there were editors for these newspapers. So they were able to pretty strictly, if they wanted, pick what news is getting out there. But you're hoping that they're doing a good job. Where today in like an unlimited, 
you have unlimited options, not only for posting thoughts and beliefs, but then in, in reading them and stuff, how important it is just to, yeah, be a ruthless editor in the sense of making sure what you're consuming is actually, you know, of a certain quality. Yeah, I think it would have looked different, but I think the fundamental mechanics are, I think, identical in that um, the news is dictated by sales. You know, and as much as we cut out, like, this freedom in America, it's like, well, if the news entities, whatever, whether it's the 1978 five, you know, news stations and your, your local paper... Um, or the modern, like, million websites with, you know, a million different perspectives on things. Um, like, the thing is that the underlying principle is the same in that, like, whatever's going to get clicks or money is going to get produced. And, like, everything else is going to kind of fall out, you know, even if it's high quality. You know, so ba- I think it's, it's kind of fundamentally asked the question, like, is um, is money and attention like the best mechanism to get like quality news you know whereas like in a in america like we would like look down upon like a government-run news station and i think there's definite like uh problems with that or like that that certainly could be rife with corruption um if the government is in charge of its own of, of the news but um but yeah, it's not like the alternative is a, is is like problem free either, you know. Well, let's uh, let's move forward because we might circle back to some of these topics regardless with the next question. But we'll push forward a little bit here. Uh, which critique would you provide the most pushback against, or which is not a fair criticism in your eyes? I might jump in just to get it rolling here. Um, so the one I would push back against most is the legalistic life section. Um, I think, I mean, I think there are, are a lot of valid claims, uh, that he makes that, uh, yeah, just a, a society that has, uh, well, this is a quote of his. So a society with no other scale, but the legal one is also less than worthy of man. Basically, if there's no moral responsibility, just a legal responsibility, it, it just facilitates this, uh, kind of manipulative world. Right, where you're just trying to do the bare minimum and just trying to uh, avoid legal things. And then, you know, could, and, and there's no room for a moral imagination. And also, uh, kind of later on, not in the legalistic life section, but later on in the speech, he talks about just legalistic thinking. And this is another quote inducing paralysis. It prevents one from seeing the scale and meaning of events. Um, yeah, and I think there's some valid claims there. But the thing that I think. I, or the trends that I, I think are really good that I would say kick back against the legalistic life uh, critique is just how much they, the idea of like social responsibility, environmental responsibility, um, those types of things have entered into the corporate mindset for sure. In terms of like, if you're just looking at, you know, companies trying not to pollute rivers and whatever, you know, like it's not even just not polluting rivers. It's like companies are purposely, marketing themselves as like, yep, we're going to be, we're striving for zero net zero emissions or, you know, what have you. Um, so I don't know. I, I think there is a decent amount of non-legalistic behavior, even if it's somewhat misguided, <laughs> I think morally guided behavior than 
Solzhenitsyn kind of gives uh, the West credit for. I was actually going to choose the same one as far as pushback goes, the legalistic life as it's titled in the um, in the speech, or at least in the, the speech here. I kind of was just approaching it kind of the sense of, I don't know, I, I feel like you have, it's like I understand, you know, that you don't want to, you don't want these people doing that solely because the law tells you to and just completely relying on the law and never trying to go above and beyond or whatnot. But I just kind of feel like you have to have some sort of foundational law there. So I'm not saying there's like nothing there. It just seems like compared to the other ones, it just doesn't seem to be the same level of critique as far as we got it wrong, if that makes sense. Just to not completely copy though, to kind of keep talking, I will choose... Now that you picked legalistic stuff, I will take, I think, a little bit of pushback on his the loss of will section. I get what he's saying. That being said, and I'll kind of try to quote it. um, So he talks about our loss of willpower. And he says, in a state of psychological weakness, weapons even become a burden for the capitulating side. Now he does say to defend oneself, one must also be ready to die. Yes, I'm right. We kind of talked about that in a prior episode, so I'm on board with that. And then he says, there is little such readiness in a society raised in the cult of material well-being. I see what he's saying, and I kind of get the idea that, I don't remember, we've, I've heard this somewhere, maybe it was we referenced it, right? Like, good times produce weak men, bad times produce strong men, kind of that idea. If, I just kind of feel like if the need arose... I think I I think we could be shook out of our comfortable complacency maybe more than he gives us credit for there. But again, not not like disagreeing with everything he's saying as far as kind of the the route sure. that it will go or the order it's going to happen in, but I yeah. just I think I give us a little more credit than that. I think that the war in U- Ukraine has sort of been actually an, an inspiring example of that, right? Because in many ways, Ukraine is similar. You know, your your 20 or 18-year-old Ukrainian is fairly similar to an 18 or 20-year-old here. Probably likes watching more TV than they should and eating crap and blah, blah. But... Clearly, they were forced to, you know, take up arms in this pretty uh, physical war going on. And it's like, man, holy smokes, like, they're taking real risks with their lives in order to defend their country and et cetera, et cetera. It's like, yeah, like Ross is saying, it's it's striking and surprising how easily that those very core values, core impetuses within us can be called c-u-l-l-e-d uh back up to the surface um my critiques of his critiques (laughs) the critiques of his critiques (laughs) um i didn't study for this one so much just let it go (laughs) yeah no i think we're yeah maybe i think we talked about Things like that. Yeah, things we provide pushback for. My okay, uh, my oh. <laughs> my critique is the same as what came up in his obituary. But at the same time, it's like, man, we're talking about this speech. It's like What are you talking about his obituary? 
just yeah, I, I don't know if I. Uh, it was yeah. just something I I looked at. New York Times wrote a fairly lengthy obituary, you know, when he died. Hmm. Um, and just one of the things like I'd mentioned before was like, dude, know your audience for this commencement speech. <laughs> like, it just does not <laughs> work or fit. Um, sure. But yeah, the point is things that we're talking about now and. I'm sure that most every Harvard graduate, you know, in all reality is still talking. And who knows? There could be a handful of people in that class who did whatever they were graduate degree to, degree to do. And then 10 or 15 years later, they remembered what Alexander had said. And like, man, I, I need to change my course. I used to be a lawyer who just chased ambulances but now i'm going to you know be a lawyer for for the little guy um i mean that's that's believable um so some interesting tidbits on that are you critiquing his critique or are you agreeing with him then I'm not speaking on... Well, I'm just speaking in broad ways about why would you give this oh. speech to college graduates? Sure, just sure, Just to have sure. something. Um, but since I don't know if this will have any other spot, I'll share this a little tidbit. Apparently, <laughs> when he lived in Vermont for 17 years, like he, ba- he pretty much never left his property. He had like one set of neighbors he would talk to who were like also Russian and... Apparently on the evening before he left, he said something like, yeah, maybe I should have gotten to know my neighbors, but then I wouldn't have had all the time to write all this stuff. And Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll, oh, well. <laughs> I'll offer one more short critique as well, and this isn't of one of his specific points, but I feel like of something he said that kind of has a little bit of an overarching feel through the speech 200 or even 50 years ago, it would have seemed quite impossible in America that an individual be grounded boundless freedom with no purpose simply for the satisfaction of his whims. So he's kind of comparing America today to the America of the past and how it's changed, obviously, in in his opinion, kind of gone down this path of, right, not the best way. I feel like he maybe gave a little bit too much Maybe it is still a critique, but I feel like he gave it a little too much. I don't know if weight's the right word or praise, but too much credit to too like much credit America to the past. Or something, I feel like or too, too much, much yeah, too much yeah. nostalgia and credit to the past. I'm just not convinced that. What I think I agreed with the most was some of his like the root cause arguments. I liked those a lot, but I feel like yeah. for people. I think a lot of times the people are probably similar. It's more the environment that's going to dictate how you act. Kind of like you said, like the Ukraine people our age in Ukraine probably weren't 15 years ago. I don't think we would have looked at them and said, oh, wow, look at the maybe I don't know many people from Ukraine, but you get my point. I think I think but the circumstances they were placed in kind of forced them to rise to the occasion in a certain sense. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's because he, he brings into a, a, a few like timeless topics about like he doesn't I don't know if he uses the term original sin, but like he basically talks all around it. You know, this fundamental flawedness of humanity and like how humanism is kind of like if you're going to worship the human person or the human being, 
and the human beings are flawed, you're worshiping something that's flawed. <laughs> like, what do you think is going to come from that? You know, more flaws, you know? So he talks all around that concept. But yeah, then he also ha- kind of has this nostalgia as if that wasn't the case in the past. <laughs> you know? So like, yeah, yeah I kind of I get that. Um, and I think that's something that I, I certainly tend towards. And I, yeah, I think it's a good thing to remind myself of. Let's let's maybe push forward to the next one. So which critique represents the greatest danger to our country? I was too busy reading his obituary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I I suppose a fashion and thinking, there's a sort of uh, relatedness to the direction of freedom thing. The fashion of thinking thing, it's... um, yeah there is something that's become profoundly striking to me over the last several years as um you know as as wokeness is you know ever ever more present seemingly but it might be might be hitting a crescendo it seems like too you know early in college, I and mean, we all sort of had similar college experiences within the um, the Catholic culture, and there is, you know, one can one can certainly tell when within a Catholic culture or just any religious culture, like people people are drinking the Kool Aid, right? And it's sure. it's really striking to me how similar that Kool-Aid drinking can be in that environment with with the woke stuff. And it's like you almost just sure. want to like shake at, at some level at some level the uh, the the Catholic Kool-Aid crowd like I mean they, they've always been there. And at the same time, here's actually an interesting thing that sort of struck me there. There's like the the Catholic Kool Aid drinker, if you will. The worst they can be is like a little annoying. <laughs> um, but the woke Kool Aid drinker, what's what's the worst they'd be? I forget where I went with that uh, thought experiment when I came up with it. But the the point is, it's like it's just you want so bad, it's like. Dude, do you realize how non-critical you're being with, you know, what what you're thinking? You're you are thinking fashionably, right? That that's all it is, all you're doing with um sure. this particular particular far left thought. Um I need a little sorry, just what do you, give me more specific when you said like Catholic Kool-Aid drinker. Like what are you talking about? It's talking about you, Ross. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think I think that the whole idea that like, what's a Kool Aid drinker at heart? A Kool Aid drinker is someone who maybe doesn't like who who does who who is maybe quick to jump on and quick to jump off of things, right? So they're, they're kind of quick to jump on and kind of like, oh yeah, Catholic stuff, yeah, like. This quote by mm. JP2 is really great. You know, it's changed my life. And then this other quote, like two weeks later, changed my life again. And this, uh, you know, and, and this, yeah, I guess more of like a superficial taking in of like Catholic things, right? As opposed to like a more sober um, and 
like, uh, yeah, substantial, like, taking in of things. Um, you probably don't want to get too uh, bogged down this this thing. But at the same time, it does feel a little bit, not that that seems, like, completely off, um, but it does feel a little bit cheap, sure. cheap to reduce it to just liking jp2 quotes a lot <laughs> um i well okay we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll just leave it at that okay onward apparently catholics are drinking straight whiskey and no kool-aid <laughs> <laughs> well yeah well to uh yeah so i guess the 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 section i thought was or the critique i thought presented the greatest danger was the unexpected kinship section when he talks about sort of this uh, almost like a plot twist, you know, between the similarities of humanism and communism, which is the, the world he uh, was exiled from. And I think just the, like just take into mind like these similarities right between like our, our you know, modern Western civilization and or and uh, uh, communism. Um, so one freedom from religious or uh, religious responsibility or just religion at large is one. Two, concentration on social structures with an allegedly scientific approach. Um, three, rhetoric in, uh, revolving around earthly happiness and just, yeah, maintaining our, our yeah uh, state of life here on earth. Um, and then four, emphasis on materialism and social reforms. And I think this, because if... Uh, I mean, obviously, communism as it was presented in, like, the 40s when he was criticizing Stalin and got in prison, right? Like, I think that, uh, obviously, like, America is a far cry from that, right? Like, there are plenty of people critiquing Joe Biden and not going getting arrested for it, right? Right? Like, it's, it, and same thing with Donald Trump and same thing with any president in the last whatever, you know, like, it's, it's yeah, we're a very far cry from that. So I don't like, yeah, this isn't like alarmist. I'm not trying to uh, act as alarmist, but yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, there, I think there are some alarming trends in Europe in that, uh, and even in Canada in terms of like certain laws about uh, just like very restrictive of free speech to that, like if you were to misgender someone in England, like you could be arrested. Like if you were to, uh, um, I mean, I think in Canada, there have been several people arrested for, uh, resist or for putting some opposition between like their children's like uh, transgender treatments and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think there are definite reasons to be alarmed for, for like just weird things like that. But I think to get to the core of it is like, I, I mean, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I think hits it on the head when he talks about materialism as like the sub, like the underlying thing. Um, and by materialism, I don't think he just means like shopping a lot and like, buying things, you know, uh, not like the common interpretive, more like a philosophical materialism where it's like the only thing that actually matters is material situations or material well-being. And just as much as communism tries to remedy that, capitalism also just tries to remedy that to the exclusion at times of the spiritual uh, nature of man. And to the exclusion of like this anthropology that I think requires you to uh, involve more than just like material circumstances. 
and like along with that kind of come the other things like avoid you know freedom from religion or religious responsibility if you have a true anthropology of man as like soul and you know body and soul um like yeah you're going to have some sort of religious uh room for that you know you're going to make room for that um if you have that anthropology right in terms of body and soul uh like you're not just going to concentrate on social structures. You're going to like acknowledge that like this human being has a really cool dynamic and ability to choose something and choose to do something great. Um, and when you like cut all of that down and reduce it to these kind of like mechanical things that just happen for no reason um, or for just uh, material reasons, um, like, gosh, you just it's like cutting off both of your legs and ask, and then wondering why you're not running, you know? I was going to say the most dangerous was the sex, like his idea on humanism and its consequences, which obviously feeds in then to the unexpected kinship section sure. of the speech. Um, kind of for the same reason. I feel like the others seem to be pretty like practical. Hey, this happened and it's a critique of the place, but it seems like that when there's something just different about it in the sense of, it's kind of the cause of these other ones. So, right, when he talks that section of the speech, he says, how has this unfavor unfavorable relation of forces come about? How did the West decline from its triumphal march to its present debility? And then he, skipping several parts, says, this means the mistake must be at the root, at the very foundation of thought in modern times. So I kind of feel like this... Um, this idea of trying to take away the spiritual and look solely at the human is going to lead to all of these other problems, which like you said, is going to end up in materialism. And so like, I don't, I don't think we got to a different place necessarily, but for me, that seems to be like just reading through the speech, almost like a little bit of a switch as opposed to it wasn't necessarily so much on the, this is this thing that I'm pointing out in the society that's bad, but like, this is why it got there. Um, so it makes sense to me that that would be dangerous just in the sense that it's going to have all of these negative consequences, which yeah, I think is just interesting, kind of the comparisons of of capitalism to communism, not in like the specifics, but in kind of these other comparisons. Because um, I kind of thought, kind of think something from that too was interesting from the speech as a whole, something I just feel like I kind of liked and I feel like it maybe is a sign that he's getting a lot of true things is I feel like this speech would make most people uncomfortable. Like yeah. if you're, I mean, you can go like kind of how he's saying a, a Western capitalist or an Eastern communist, kind of how it's set up here. Like he critiques both pretty strongly, right? He says that he's not, he doesn't, we haven't talked about it, but he specifically says he's not trying to hold up communism as a, as, a, yeah. as the solution. Um, but even within like just modern day United States, I feel like if you're, uh, per, put out stereotypes here, but if you're, uh, you know, a conservative Republican, there's a lot in his speech that's going to make you really uncomfortable. But I feel like at, yeah. if you're a liberal Democrat, there's also a ton in this speech that's going to make you really uncomfortable. Well, we've identified what he's done right, what he's done wrong. Where do we go from here though? Mm, glad you asked, Mike. What uh, final bell question? Can I ask one question before oh. the final bell? Ooh, ooh. 
yeah, yeah. Do Sorry, it. I don't want to draw us out too long, but I feel like there's something then, like talked about the past, talked about the seventies, talked about the present, like looking to the future. It seems like I feel like I think a lot of people today recognize a lot of the faults he's talking about. Right? There seems to be kind of a generation that is trying to oppose this get as much money as you can, get as much well uh power as you can, have the nice domestic big house and a nice fancy neighbor like it seems like there's a kind of a a large part of maybe even our generation and then younger as well that is kind of saying no to all of that but it seems like and not to try to speak for people when they're not present but i feel like a lot of people have a problem then knowing what to say yes to so i feel like there is a renewed interest in quote unquote spirituality like i feel like but people are but young people and it's kind of the new i would say kool-aid honestly but a new way of thinking is just they recognize the need for that but people are uncomfortable to let christianity fill the void if that makes sense so i i mean i just i i can picture people you know, our age or younger, young adults, college kids that definitely say no to this kind of unrestricted capitalism and materialism and are almost afraid to say yes to, you know, Christianity. So there's interest in Eastern religions or, and I know the yoga thing, people, some people have it just because of its, um, kind of the physical traits too, but even like an interest in Jordan Peterson, who kind of is able to elicit some of these thoughts, right? He talks about that, like the meaning of like how we need responsibility. It like kind of, I feel like that's kind of tied into this idea of, you know, freedom for what, not just unrestricted freedom, but for responsibility. Um, So I I feel like people seem to be searching. They recognize the fail, like the negative consequences of these thoughts, but haven't seemed to, there just seems to be kind of a grasping at what can, replace or can fill that those problems well without going too long down this question but to mention something briefly came up i mean i think that there's a tendency it feels like to reject christian um christianity as an option for one's personal beliefs in lieu of some sort of non-binding amalgam of eastern religions um because of one just the reference made to that non-binding because it's like i remember actually matt fred says something about like this when he was dabbling in like buddhism or something it's like the sentiments are so vague that you can just make them mean whatever you want and that's not necessarily to say that that's what the buddhism is just vague but at least in the way that it's instantiated for your average white yokel um (laughs) compared to what's christianity oh well oh i see this catholic church down there's a priest and you know they've got these parish dinners sometimes and right it's very clear like what 
at least makes a trying Christian a Christian, right? And if you're doing it well or not versus something vague and ambiguous where no one's going to tell you. Like, you can just tell your aunt and uncle at Easter, oh, I'm Buddhist now. And they'll be like, oh, that's great. And no one actually even knows that mean. You can just forget about it, you know, two years later. Um, sure. But the other thing as well that I think there's that reticence to take on the personal responsibility of, of Christianity is that, and this sort of ties what Alexander mentions, because there there's a history there, right? Because Christianity, especially in the West, has been such a prominent influence, um, directly in good ways and some ancillary negative ways, right? And in contrast with, well, Buddhism doesn't have a history here, right? So it's like there isn't that sense of negativity towards it, even though it has its own history somewhere else. I think it's time for the final bell. Ding, 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 ding. One more round. There's no stopping us now. This is our round. Don't stop it now. We're starting. We don't stop. All your spirit. All your power. All your love. Everything you've got. This is your whole life. Do it now. Now. <laughs> All right. Final bell question, guys. Bring it home. Which critique... All right, we're talking all these critiques, talking at a high level, talking about original sin, humanism, capitalism, communism, all these things, all these isms. But what critique can we do the most to correct ourselves? Okay, I got one. Um, decline in courage. Um, mm. there's, there's a challenging conversation, particularly... Um, I've been putting off with someone um, in my life and you know in the sort of the nature of it is like well yeah you could just keep on keeping on and things would be pretty good and well but or or you you do what's scary right what you're not certain of what the outcome will be um what feels healthier and that's scary (laughs) um it's not with either of you guys don't worry um yeah i was a little bit nervous i really was i was like dang it (laughs) (laughs) dang it what did i do this time it's just we want we want so much to just be comfortable, you know, and it's it's amazing the the amount of weight that we um will choose to tolerate um in the spirit of that, you know. Hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry, Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Then if you end. I don't know. You if end dis- your answer with "I am the problem with America." Yeah, I was because I don't know if you're disagreeing with him or you're just recognizing that he's correct and trying to not go down the road. Yeah, I thought that's how we were. Well, supposed yeah. To I think okay, that's, okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. I think okay. That's, okay. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to. Yeah, I think that's what I had in mind. I would say just to give Matt the final word. Then again, I, 
maybe you guys just have so much influence on me. I feel like I'm going to get to the same place, but by a different road. Um, I was going to say the loss of will. Um, as far as what can I actually do the most about to prevent it from coming to fruition. Um, my thought was more on the sense of it seems easy to like specifically for that, for the loss of will and kind of some of the other things we've talked about in the episode. I feel like you kind of come into adulthood with a certain zeal, right? You kind of figure out the person you want to be and then you picture yourself doing it really well and changing the world and all these things. And it's just easy to fall into kind of a sense of going through the motions one day after the next type thing. So anyway, so as far with that being said, is uh, to answer the question, I feel like where I have the most power to stop it would be like within my family. So just the type of just the type of family life that I create um, for my for my wife, my kids, my family, I feel like needs to look, not necessarily fall into some of these things that I said I would avoid, you know, years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Which I feel like, tie, the reason I said same, I, I mean, I feel like courage, you could make the exact same statement with the kind of the loss of courage, but sure. I kind of was approaching that with this loss of will. Um, so I feel like the, the quote from it, he says, in the face of such a danger, with such historical values in your past, with such a high level of attained freedom and apparently of devotion to it, how is it possible to lose to such an extent the will to defend oneself? So I feel like just kind of reading that and then in light of Matt's question, I feel like I feel a little bit charged up to, okay, I need to kind of exert my will. You know, this is what I believe to be true. I, I need to go and do it. So, um, yeah, my answer for this one was the, the direction of freedom critique. Um, and he, I mean, he specifically cites kind of the, the cause of evil has shifted from an individual responsibility to defective social systems. And like, <clears throat> I, yeah, I'm certainly not in a position where like social systems would be any disadvantage to me. Like I grew up in a, well-off family in a well-off town, good school, like that sort of thing. But I think that there's still um, just an ever-present temptation to just shift your responsibility, like whether it's like within like marital relationships, but like, oh, well, you know, this is, this is hard for me. So like, you know, I guess I, you know, why should I be responsible for it? You know, uh, or uh, even just like within, I mean, even just within like work stuff, like most Americans work for large companies and like the larger the company, I feel like the easier it is to shift your responsibility and like pawn it off to someone else or some other department, you know, gosh, like how much has been, how much value has been lost, how much um, trouble has been caused, how much angst has been wrought from just like shifting responsibility, you know, whether it's like in a corporate setting because your job allows you to whatever. And like, yeah, I I would say, I mean, I work for a really big hospital system. So like, I I think there are opportunities for me to, to pawn things off to people. Um, and then like, even it's just within your family, um, setting as well, instead of like being like, you know, what am I free to do? 
you know, what, what am I actually called to do? And that's what I should be implementing. Uh, and I think that can change how you, I mean, that'll change your budget, you know, <laughs> that'll change your, your schedule, your time schedule, yeah, or your calendar, your, it'll change your, um, yeah, I mean, just how you spend, if you have 15 minutes free, you know, like, are you going to call a family member or, you know, scroll on your phone, you know, uh, the direction of freedom, I think, is the thing that, that, like, we fundamentally, like, can choose, um, and that doesn't depend. And it doesn't matter who the president is, or it doesn't matter if you're a capitalist or a communist or, or whatever the prevailing uh, kind of governmental influences on your life. Uh, so with that said, I think that wraps up this episode of The Speech Guys. Um, this was fun. I enjoyed it. Good. Landon is host for our last installment of the Speeches by Prisoners series, but... Until then, thanks for drinking. And thinking. With us. Hey, be safe out there, y'all. Cue the music. Dead ends come and go. Look toward the horizon. Up ahead you'll find a peace of mind. Relief from the trying. Wrecked in a ditch, had to ask forgiveness Dead ends come and go Look toward the horizon Oh, there are stories to tell The times we grew and the times we fell Oh, I've been afraid some days But the road will lead us to a better place Better play